So I don't, I don't know about you, but one of the difficulties that I have with this— Hold on, I'm going to forget to read the Bible. Luke chapter 12. Um, one of the difficulties that I have with this in relationship to um, stewardship is comparison. Right? Like, I think of people that I know who are running for public office and just— all the attacks and humiliation. Doesn't matter which party you are. Doesn't matter if you're a good man or woman or not. I mean, none of that matters, right? There's this whole, there's this whole public thing where we just say whatever we feel like we want to about whoever we want to, whether it's true or false. And that doesn't happen to me near as much. There's people that don't like me and that tell me, but I mean, not in national or statewide news media, right? Um, or Manohar, like I think about him, like leaving his family for a couple of months to go do ministry. The longest I've left my family is about 20, it's like 21 days. It's not even a whole month do ministry. And, um, and so, like, on one level, I do think that people who risk much and do things that should be inspiring to us should push us. I think it's okay for me to feel, like, when I watch Manohar do that, and I think about what that, that means in his life, I think it's okay for me to feel, like, pushed by that. You know what I mean? Like, maybe I need to get my behind in gear a little bit. Maybe I'm getting a little lazy. Maybe, you know, like, I shouldn't think that, like, oh, Somebody after my last summer was like, oh, you do so much, Nick. No, I should probably not think too much about that comment. I should think about what my brother's trying to do, and maybe that should push me a little bit. And I think that's good. I think we should push each other, right? But I can't define myself in my stewardship from a Noah. His stewardship is different than mine. So how do I know that I'm faithfully fulfilling the stewardship that God has given me? It has to be more objective than that. God has to specifically tell us, and we have to be able to apply that to ourselves, right? And so in these chapters, chapters 12 to 16 in Luke— Jesus focuses a lot on the concepts that are built into stewardship, what it means to give ourselves to God, to know that we, we own nothing, but we, we are in charge of everything he puts in our lives and in our hands to serve him. Does that make sense? So let's read this passage. I'm going to read from verses 13 to 34. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus replied, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbiter between you? And then he said to them all, that is the whole crowd, watch out and be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. He told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man yielded an abundant harvest. He thought to himself, what shall I do? I have no place to store my crops. And then he said, this is what I'll do. I'll tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones and there I will store my surplus grain. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of grain laid up for years. Take life easy and dr eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, you fool, this very night your life will be demanded from you. And then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? This is how it will be with whoever stores up things for themselves, but isn't rich toward God. Then Jesus said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat, or about your body, or what you will wear. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothes. Consider the ravens. They do not sow or reap. They have no storeroom or barn, yet God feeds them. And how much more valuable are you than birds? And you who by—who of you by worrying can add a single hour to his life? And since you cannot do this very little thing— why do you worry about the rest? Consider how the flowers grow. They do not labor or spin. 
Yet I tell you, not even Solomon in all of his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and tomorrow is thrown into the fire, how much more will he clothe you, you of little faith? And do not set your hearts on what you will eat or drink. Do not worry about it, for the pagan world runs after all such things. And your Father knows that you need them. But seek his kingdom. And these things will be given to you as well. Do not be afraid, little flock, for your Father has been pleased to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the poor. Provide for yourselves purses that will not wear out, a treasure in heaven that will never fail, where no thief comes near and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Okay, so I want a quick review last week, if you weren't here at the start of the series. What we talked about last week was this. You are a steward. So we should define that term. What that means is you are a steward, and what a steward is is somebody who owns nothing but governs everything and something that is very dear. The word oikonomia, which is the Greek word it comes from, means the ruler of a household. The person who's in charge of a whole household. So somebody else who's quite important and wealthy, apparently, has somebody governing the thing most dear to them, their own household. But the steward, the oikonomia, owns nothing in the household, and yet he's in charge of everything in the household like he's the master of the house. And that's you, right? If you're a believer, your purpose in life is to be a steward. Everything that's in your hands, you may own it, and you do own it economically and politically and so on. Like, you own it in relationship to your neighbor. They don't own it, and you own it. But in relationship to God, there's nothing you can own that God doesn't own. God owns everything. In that sense, we own nothing. And yet, he doesn't decide what's going to happen with your money. Not literally, you're the person in charge of that, or your time, or what career you invest in, or how you raise your children, or what you do with your time, or involvement in a local church, or preaching the gospel, or any, anything that could make up your life. You have to decide what to do. That's on you. He's given you that responsibility. You must govern everything, right? And then he's, he hasn't given you tons of laws to do it. You have to choose how you're going to do it. The, the, the Bible's laws can only give you a few guidelines, it can't decide most of the decisions in your life. Virtue and faith and knowing Christ has to define that. And you must make the decisions because you're free to make them. And stewardship is a role, not a standing. To say you're a steward and that you own nothing doesn't make you a slave. Right? In the ancient world, a steward could be a son. But he just doesn't own the house yet because his dad's still alive. But he might be in charge of everything. So you can be a son or a daughter or an heir and still be a steward. And Jesus said one of the best designations is friend. He says, I call you friends because I haven't hidden from you what I'm doing. I've told you everything that I'm doing. So you'll know how to make those decisions because you're not just a son or a daughter. You're a friend, right? And therefore, we can understand that partly because ultimately the Bible says that Jesus' greater identity as a a human was to be a steward. He was faithful over everything God put under him. And we're called the same thing. Now, our scope is smaller than Jesus, but our calling isn't any different in that sense. We're all stewards, okay? So for all stewards, like, how do we set the ethos of that? Like, what does it mean? How do we do it? And the first big point Jesus makes as he, as he starts moving into this in chapter 12, is he basically says this, the heart of stewardship is to be rich toward God. You can't, you can't be a stingy steward. You can't be a steward that doesn't invest. You can't be a steward that doesn't govern. Greed and covetousness are the opposite of stewardship. 
generosity and investment and risk are fundamental to stewardship. And you have to get that right. If you don't get it right, you can't be a steward. It, it, it'll never work. One, there's one point where Jesus sends out his disciples and he says, freely you've received, freely give. Another place in, in, I think it's in Colossians, but it's in a number of places actually in the New Testament. It says, in Christ you've received everything. So you have everything to give. You might say like, Nick, I don't have a lot of money or a lot of education. The Bible says that Jesus is your life and that in him you have received all these things, spiritual and moral and relational assets and capacities that are much more valuable, right? If you took away every dollar that I have, you took away every penny that I have, and I've been saying, I'm 41, like I've been putting money in my retirement for years, and I've tried to save money, and um, my mom's an immigrant, right? Like I'm, I am stingy, okay? And, you know, except when I buy ice cream. And, and like, I've, but if you were able to take every penny that I had, you wouldn't take more than about 10% of my wealth. I've educated myself over years. That's enormously valuable. I have close family members and friends that would do anything for me. You, you can't take that from me. So all my social, moral, and spiritual capital is way more capital than my money. Right? I'd much rather you take all my money than shoot me through one part of my brain over here. Because you're—don't think, do not believe the materialist, worldly lie that your money is how much wealth you have to invest in God's kingdom and in eternity. It's not. Your wealth is nearly irrelevant. Does that make sense? Okay. I want to say th three things relatively quickly in normal pastoral style. One is that Jesus is saying that a steward must be vigilant against greed and covetousness in a very absolute kind of way. You can, you can see this in that first sentence he says. He says, listen, you need to watch out and be on your guard, which is just a modern way of saying vigilant, of every or every kind of greed. So you see, see how, how carefully he constructed that sentence? He didn't just say, be careful about greed. He used two building verbal ideas. So one, you need to watch and be ready to see your enemy far off. You need to be watchful, and then you need to be vigilant. You need to be on the rampart expecting to be attacked, right? And not just against Greed generally, or the, the word is actually more literally covetousness, but they're similar ideas. But he's like, you need to be prepared for all kinds, right? It's like, it's not like you're going to get attacked one way. There's all kinds of ways to attack you because you can buy all kinds of things with money and you can love all kinds of different things. So greed has a thousand different ways to charm us, right? Like if, if it's up to me, like if I had just like piles of useless money, right? Like I would spend a lot of money on like some elk trip, like, where I would live. Like, riding horses, trudging through snow in, like, the mountains of Idaho. Like, and I mean, there's some of you be like, that sounds great. But most people are like, I would rather go to a spa or play golf or, like, eat something, right? Or, or go to a, a Packers game and get one of those big boxes where they have, like, the best hot dogs, you know? <laughs> right? Because of that, and then not, you can't—it's not just you can buy stuff, but you can also buy security for yourself, or fake security at least. Like, I've got all this stored up, so no matter what happens, I can deal with it, right? And then, of course, everybody wants to be your friend if you have money, so you get all kinds of approval. So there's lots of different ways it sneaks up on you. And, and so think about this. In the Ten Commandments, there's only one that is internal, and there's only one that gives multiple applications of how you can go wrong, right? Most of it's like, don't give false testimony. Don't kill people that you're not supposed to. Don't commit murder. 
don't steal, right? And it doesn't say don't steal horses or soda cans or like it, it just says don't steal, right? And then it gets to the very last one to covetous. It says, listen, do not covet your neighbor's wife, your neighbor's donkey, your neighbor's stuff. And then it ends with, or anything that belongs to your neighbor. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, it says, Timothy, listen, be on your guard because the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Right? Money isn't the root of all evil, but the love of money, greed or covetousness, is the root of tons of different kinds of evil. You see, and when you can be attacked by just one thing, it's fairly easy to ward it off. You can be like, okay, every night at like 8 o'clock, I'm going to want to eat a big tub of ice cream, and I just know that's coming. But that's very different than somebody that can get at you 50 different ways. Right? That's different. And so what Jesus is saying is like, listen, for every single person, you need to know that you need to have multiple layers of defense. You need to be watching, expecting it to come. You need to be ready to fight and vigilant, and you need to realize there's all kinds of different attacks, right? Because human beings are so prone to think our life consists in the abundance of our possessions. And Jesus says, be on your guard. Don't covet. Be, be on. Because life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. If you've given your life to get rich, that's bad news. But the good news is you can change your outlook right now. Okay, and then you can use your wealth to buy purses for yourself in heaven that don't wear out. We'll get to that in a little bit. And if you're not wealthy, life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Your life your godliness, what your life means, your purpose, your stewardship does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Human beings need very little to be happy and to be, live fruitfully. Okay, so th think about the story for a minute, right? right let's, go back to, let's go back to the brothers for a second. Whenever you read a parable in the Bible or a passage like this, one of the things you should always ask is, why is Jesus talking about this? Because oftentimes the gospel writer will say, this happened, and then Jesus talked about it this way. Do you remember how it starts? There's two brothers, and one of them says, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. Now, this is a very important point, and it's so easy to read over it, but it's right there, right? That sounds, that sounds reasonable. Doesn't that sound reasonable? Tell my brother to share the inheritance with me. There's two of us. There's a certain amount of money. It should obviously be split. Jesus I need justice. I'm being treated unjustly. Now, this is very important, okay? Because listen, when greed attacks you and gets behind your defenses, it's not going to voluntarily advertise that it's greed, okay? And your flesh and your heart is going to be like, I'm, I'm making this space for greed. Isn't this nice? That's not what's going to happen, right? You're going to justify it, right? The human, the human heart, the human mind, when not submitted to Christ and growing in virtue, is an excuse factory, right? And the best excuse for greed is what? Right? To be greedy, right, you have to hurt other people. Because greed is that you need more, and you cannot only do what's right to get more. You need to, like, do more than what's right to get more. And so you need an excuse to hurt other people, right? To not pay them what they deserve, or to take what's not yours, or to rig the game in your favor. Like, you need some reason why you can feel justified, right? And the best excuse for that is injustice. Something you could say, I was treated badly. I was treated wrongly. Those people did bad things to me, so I need to do bad things to them. 
Do you see the demonic logic there? You never get to do bad things to other people. That's why God basically has these laws where like, you don't get to do bad things to people when you get treated badly. Because, why? One, because it's just true. Because if you really did get treated badly, you don't get to treat other people badly. But because your heart is going to manufacture a thousand reasons for why you're not being treated well enough that are not even true. That are motivated by different forms of greed. And you have to have this like dead-on stop command of God to be like, you don't get to play that. Right? I mean, think about this. What is justice in the distribution of an inheritance? Is it that every kid should get an equal amount? No. No. It's not their money. Justice in an inheritance is this. The parents own the money. It is 100% their money. They could give it to whomever they want to in whatever proportion they want to, because it's theirs. That's justice. And anything that interferes with that, like demanding that they do it a certain way, is injustice. And this guy, think about this. Maybe his parents think that a bunch of unearned wealth will destroy his life. And we know that's right, because he's yelling out in front of a bunch of people to a Jewish rabbi who has better things to do than to adjudicate his anger, that he should get into his family business and tell his brother what he ought to do with his money that his parents freely gave him. So Jesus' response to this is relatively subtle. He goes, I don't think I'm an arbitrator of you. Let's all talk about greed for a minute. <laughs> right? But you see, the subtle point there that you, you need to recognize is for all of our sins, no matter what they are, there is almost always, the flesh will always produce the argument of justice for us. So that we feel justified and we feel righteous. And right now, this is a very bad time in our, in our society because humility is not held very high. And all forms of self-righteousness are held very high. F from all political persuasions, from lots of different realms or areas towards other people. We are, our, our culture is seething off of self-righteousness. Right? And that's— that just—we just will fall into that if we're not really careful. Listen, humility is always your greatest friend, and pride is always your greatest enemy. At every moment, at every time, in everything. Right? And so then, if you look at this rich man, it's important to recognize, as Jesus is teaching this, why is this rich man condemned by God? And it's important because it says at the end, this is what will happen with everyone or anyone who is whatever this is. Okay? So this—Jesus is claiming that this parable does not just apply to rich men— or women. This parable applies to all human beings. And now it's important to recognize that this man is not condemned by God because he's rich. He's not. Which is interesting because if any gospel writer was going to condemn the rich just for being rich, it would be Luke. Because he is very focused on the poor. I mean, the very next parable, Jesus is like, sell all your stuff and give it to the poor, right? Yet this guy isn't in trouble for being rich. And he's also not in trouble for being competent. There's nothing wrong with being competent and earning a lot of money because of a very high level of competence and because you've worked really hard and because you've produced a lot of value for other people. That's why not many people are super angry that like Steve Jobs was a millionaire or billionaire. They like their iPhones. They, they pay un, unreasonable amounts of money, in my opinion, for them. But they pay that money because they believe that that device, the magic triangle, is going to bring value into their life or they wouldn't spend the money on it. They spend the money freely. Nobody's holding a gun to their head and they want it. And if you took it from them, they would riot. Right? 
that's very different, right? From somebody like knowing that a restaurant can't move and hiking up the prices and stealing their profit though you produce no more benefit to them or something. There's all kinds of immoral ways where you can squeeze money out of people. Does that make sense? And so God doesn't judge people for being competent and becoming rich. He doesn't even judge people from being fortunate and being rich. So this guy, it says that the ground produced a big crop. It doesn't say he was like, he was like a generation breaker in fertilization technology. And he, you know, like the guy just, the ground just produced a lot of wheat, man. That's all there is to it. I, there's a guy in town named Dave who owns the Princeton Clubs, right? And I, I was eating, he's extremely generous, deeply Christian guy, right? And I was sitting down with him. I was like, so he was telling me a story. He's like, Nick, I'm not that smart. Like, I just, I just was willing to take a business risk at the exact right moment that I didn't create. Like, I would just, I was there, and like, people wanted a health club. There weren't really any health clubs. I had this opportunity. I went for it as I felt God led me, and then it was just the, it was just the perfect moment, right? And that's frustrating for people like me and you because we're like, we're like, oh man, why can't that be me? Right? God is the provident one. He governs the universe, and he will make some wicked men rich, and he will make some very good and godly men rich, and you don't get to argue with him about it. He will give you a stewardship. You will find a stewardship, and it is your job to faithfully execute that stewardship. And it may be fabulous wealth, and it may be very little wealth. Right? Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. Okay? This guy did two things wrong that even poor people can do wrong. One, he hoarded everything. He gave nothing. He did not recognize that what came to him was from the generosity of God he had freely received and he should freely give. He did not have a bias toward generosity. And two, he rejected productivity. The second one is as important as the first one. In fact, Jesus spends a little bit more time on it. We normally look at this and be like, oh, the guy wasn't generous. He didn't give enough money to church, right? Listen, there is nobody who wishes that was the point of this passage more than me, okay? Like, I would love to be like, listen, this guy was supposed to give a lot of money to church, and you probably need to give a lot more money to church, right? Like, I would love that, right? But you know what the example Jesus gets for giving in this passage actually is? Right? It's in the next passage. Sell your belongings and give to the what? The church? Like, I wish. No, it says the poor, right? And our church gives, gives money to people who are poor. We have a whole system of doing that. We believe we need to give money to the poor, and that's really important. But like, that is not the point here. The point here is this. This guy hoarded the stuff so that he would never have to work again. And he said, if I, if I build bigger barns, and I fill them with all this crop, I'll be done. And I can say to myself, you have everything that you need, you can take it easy. You can eat and drink and be merry because you have much sort of for many years, right? And God says to him, oh, you're done living? Okay, then you can stop living. Do you understand? And, and listen, obviously there's a point here for retired people. Right? It doesn't mean retirement's bad. Retirement could just be like you get to be in the driver's seat for what you're going to do fruitfully today. There's nothing inherently wrong with retirement. Some of, some of the most fruitful people I know are living incredibly fruitful retirements. 
My mom's 82. She's like teaching one girl Italian. She's having conversations with the other person in Spanish. She's like writing my lesson plans for my debate team that I can't write. Like she like volunteers here. Like uh, uh, Lloyd and Cleo go to like, you know, Guatemala. You know, they're like 82 and 83. I mean, there's tons of people in this local church who are of advanced retirement age who are living incredibly fruitful lives. A heck of a lot. There are people in their 80s that are living much more fruitful lives than some of our 20-year-olds who are playing 30 hours of video games a week. Okay? Productivity and engaging in productivity and being investing in the lives of others and in the things God wants to do in the world, that is your life. Your work is your life. You don't have to be like, you know, I worked all week. I wish I could do something. Your work was something, right? Economic exchange exists so we can all voluntarily exchange with others and voluntarily enrich each other's lives in extraordinarily coordinated ways. So that somebody harvesting like rubber in one country and steel in another and like graphite in South America all coordinate freely to create a pencil that you could never make. Right? If you want to make a pastrami sandwich yourself, it costs like two grand to like grow the wheat and like buy a cow and like grow your own lettuce and then like make— it's like, it's unbelievable. It's like you could get it for like one percent of that. Your work is unbelievably useful and fruitful unless your job steals from others. Right? Like if, you're, like if you're a stripper, like come in and we'll work on another line of work for you because that's probably not the kind of fruitfulness the Lord is looking for. But like, and there are some jobs like that. But most jobs, even most jobs people don't like, like lawyers, you know, there are ways to do them in incredibly noble ways. Incredibly noble ways. And some of the most morally embattled professions are some of the ones we need Christians in, which is why I mentioned those two Christians going into politics. Right? Okay. Do you get the point here? Okay, great. Let's move on. Oh, I already said that. Okay. Here's what I want. Here's why, here's why I think Jesus focuses on greed and covetousness in relationship to stewardship. Because greed and covetousness is literally the exact opposite of stewardship. So if stewardship is, the, is what our Christ-centered personality in the Spirit should produce, greed is literally the opposite. Greed is— I should own everything, and I don't have to do anything. Right? Greed is, I should have more. I should own everything. I should own more than I have. You should give me more than I have. Covetousness is like, I want what you have more than I have. And then I can lay, I've got plenty for years, and I don't have to do anything. And stewardship is literally the opposite. Exactly. You own nothing, and you're supposed to do stuff. (laughs) You're supposed to govern everything. You're supposed to work fruitfully right? That does not mean you can't play golf, okay? It doesn't mean you can't do anything fun. Stewards were supposed to make their living from their work, and many stewards became very wealthy, but they're, one thing they all share is they are all rich toward God. They are rich in fruitful work that leads to the flourishing that God wants to bring in the world, okay? All right. Okay, where are we here now? Okay, secondly, steward, uh, if you want to be a steward— you have to face your materialistic anxieties, right? Jesus starts this section by saying, therefore. 
He's just told the story of the rich fool. And then he says, therefore, don't worry about the stuff. Because th- see, you might say to yourself, Nick, I feel like I know what greed is. And I'm gonna, I'm, I don't want to be better than everybody else. And I don't want to necessarily be fabulously wealthy. I want to be able to pay my bills. But um, I, don't, I don't feel like I'm given to greed. Okay, maybe. But the back door of greed is worry. Right? Because worry says, but, but, but we need a little bit of this. We need a little bit. Right? We, we, need, we need a little bit more money. We need a little bit more food. We need a little bit more clothing. We need a little bit more, more friends. We need a little bit more something. We, we, right? And we got to get it. Like, this is a problem, right? And right, see, that's what worry does. And it does two things. One is it, it begins to create a new argument for injustice. Right? And it does it in a really kind of passive, mousy kind of way. But what it'll also do is it'll take over your entire mind. Worry will take over your entire mind. And it's, it's a strange irony that we can live in a country that is, currently exists as the wealthiest nation in the history of the world and is incredibly anxious and worried. We're incredibly anxious and worried. What if, like, right, if you don't get that promotion, like, okay, you won't get leather seats in your new car. Like, who, who cares, man? Like, or, or like, you'll, maybe you'll have to live in an apartment. Well, that, that's a home. Like, that's a real thing. Like, Talk to somebody who owned a house in 2008 and you'll feel really thankful. Or somebody who just got three feet of water in their basement. You might see it as the grace of God, right? Like there's, there, if you, you know, Paul told Timothy, he said, listen, Timothy, focus your sense of contentment on, do I have enough to eat today? And can I put clothes on my back? Because if you base your contentment there, you're going to be fine. But if you start worrying about accumulations, worrying about, am I going to have enough? It'll, it'll take over your whole mind. And listen, the minute you start functioning off of worry and anxiety, you get conservative. You, and then you can't act as an investor. Right? Stewardship is all about taking risks and getting out there and investing what you have. You can't invest if you think you're going to run out of money. Right? Like, like I remember my wife and I were having this financial argument about how much to send to our financial planner at the beginning of the month, right? Dave Ramsey's like, look, if you want to save any money, you got to send the check at the beginning of the month. So you can't wait to, to save what's left over. You've got to bankrupt yourself. You've got to say, this is how much we're saving, and we have to survive on what's left, right? And I remember Alexi and I arguing over that because, like, if we give this much, we won't have it later, right? And so we had to decide how much we wanted to invest first. And then we had to sort out what we were going to eat and how many miles we could drive each month, and so on, on the basis after we had already invested what we might lose, but we might gain, right? And that was difficult because we were worried about, well, will we be able to play at the entrance fee for Rachel's volleyball, and will we be able to do this? And like, well, you know, I'm stressed out. I want to be able to go out to eat, like, maybe once a month, and I want to have, like, the string I can pull to be like, mom's taking us out to Little Caesars, you know, like, and I want that money, and like, if I, if we put that into our retirement, or if we Give that to missionaries or something. Like, that money isn't there, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like, either worry or investment has the preeminence in your mind and heart. Right? One of the two has preeminence. And see, if you don't face your materialistic anxieties, then you want, your life will not be driven by a Christ-centered investment, generous, all is gift, freely you have received, freely give kind of mentality you will be, I've got to protect this, and I need to squirrel some over here, and if I do this thing, and I want to—you'll you, be, you'll be trying to, to build into your own wealth rather than producing flourishing around you. 
in believing that if you can produce flourishing, people will freely give back to you. Does that make sense? And so Jesus is like, okay, listen, let's do a couple emotional thought experiments. Okay, these aren't literal, utterly rational philosophical arguments. They're emotional thought experiments. He goes, he, so he says, look, think about ravens, right? They don't farm. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine a raven like trying to plow with its beak, you know? And plants, like they don't do that. And they don't have any barns to store anything in, and yet they find food. They just fly around and they find stuff. And sometimes it's like, you know, Wendy's French fries, which is like maybe better than what you had for lunch. You know what I mean? And then, he, and then he says, now think about this, right? He's like, you're more important than birds. Like, God will take care of you, right? And then he says, think about like when you're going to die, right? Imagine you're dying and you're like, okay, I want to live another hour. Maybe if I worry really hard, I can live another hour, Right? And he's like, do you think you can do that? And the answer is pretty obvious, right? The answer is no. And 2,000 years later, we have accumulated much scientific evidence that you can definitely shorten your life an hour by worrying or years. And you'll be like, well, Nick, if I worry about pulling out in front of a Mack truck, maybe I will live several decades longer, right? But that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus isn't talking about being concerned to rightly do your future duty. That's called stewardship not worry. Worry is the—and here's the difference. The kind of worry Jesus is talking about is when you spend your energy and concern about the things that are properly God's responsibility. There are certain things you can't control, and that you have to—you have to—are responsible, and you are dependent on, on forces beyond your control. And what a Christian does is they put their trust in God. And they spend their energy on the duties in front of them that they are called to do. That is their stewardship. Whatever is there for them to govern, they govern that. And they don't worry about what they're not governing. And you see, when you focus your attention on what you're not governing, you're not only not governing what you're supposed to govern, but you're telling God implicitly he's no good at governing what he's governing. And that is a little bit not what you—the message you want to send to the Lord. Okay? And it screws up your own mind. Because if you think he's not doing a good job, who, who do you think the better steward is, you or him? Yeah, that's a problem. It's a problem. Because then you're not learning from him how you should be a steward in your life. You're telling him how he should be a steward. You're, which, and you're probably a terrible steward if you think he's worse than you. And he's not going to listen to you anyway. So we have to get that straight. You have to deal with your materialistic anxieties. Does that make sense? Same thing with the flowers. Like the the one-day flowers are dressed better than the greatest king there ever was. God knows you need clothes. Can you trust him for the things you can't control? And then can you free yourself emotionally to focus on the things you must control? Right? So here's the third thing. And that is that a steward must have faith in true wealth. You see, if you believe that your life consists in the abundance of your possessions, you as a human being cannot not care about wealth. Like, you realize that, like, you have a relationship to the world around you, and you have needs in relationship to the world around you, and you wish to have security and pleasure, and you are wired and programmed, like, you are made to be closely related to something like wealth or flourishing or something. And so, if you don't believe that there is such a thing as heavenly wealth, like, immaterial, God-centered, eternal life, versions of wealth that are greater and better and more real 
then by definition, you will be focused on and concentrated on the material sorts of wealth that you can conceptualize easily. And so if you want to be free of those, you have to believe in heaven. You have to believe that you will have Christ himself. You have to believe that you are preparing for death. You have to believe that you will exist much longer than this mortal coil. You, you have to believe that God is really there. Right? The secularist can say all he wants that religion is the opiate of the, man, of the masses. Or that there is such a thing as being so heavenly minded that you're no earthly good. What Jesus argues is that you can never be any earthly good until you are sufficiently heavenly minded. He believes the exact opposite. Only when you believe in, the, in eternal Christ, his eternal kingdom, his real heaven, that you will live beyond this life. And that this life is a stewardship to prepare for the stewardship of the next. And that you are loved in this moment and that a sovereign God provides you everything that you need. And that you already have everything you need in Christ. Can you ever be of true earthly good. Only then can you live for the flourishing of others. Only then will you enjoy pouring out your life for others. And so, in a sense, it's important to recognize that as much as when we talk about stewardship as Christians, it— Stewardship does have financial implications because we give our life for our money and our values are expressed by how we spend it. It's like, it's true that stewardship and money relate. But generosity is the fundamental thing Jesus is talking about. And generosity isn't mainly about money, but it's about the way we hold and handle everything. And so it's that in our hearts, we, are, we long to put in more than we take out of anything because we want to be productive. It's when we, we forgive because we want to invest in reconciliation. It's we give our time to help others. We give our time to share the gospel with others because what better investment than can you make than that? We give away our privacy to share hospitality. We, we give away our autonomy to marry a spouse or to have very close friendships. Because look, if, you're, if you actually have a real friend, they can bother you. That's like part of friendship. They could be like, I need your help. And you gotta be like, sure. And like, like when my wife is like, tells me one of her friends needs help, like my life stops. Like, she's like, you need to, I gotta need to do this thing. Can you take care of the kids? The answer is yes, because that person is classified as a friend. And friends get to do that. That's why I can't be friends with everybody. That's why you can't be friends with everybody. But a lot of us are really friends with nobody. Because you're not a friend until you give up some of your autonomy. Right? And you have, to, you have to give into your profession to be maximally fruitful to others. And you have to give of your time and you have to like follow other people's leadership voluntarily in order to have any kind of voluntary society like a church. And you have to give up some of your liberty to be part of a, a government, governed society that's not full of anarchy. And in all these, all these things, it's not just religion, right? Religion is about everything because God created everything and he seeks to redeem everything. Everything has its own economy. It's oikonomia. It's stewardship. And we are involved in all of those stewardships. And Jesus relates to all of those stewardships. Everything you do 
you would do differently if you did it as a steward for Christ. Right? Are you, are you terrified that, like, I won't? Do you wish I would just talk about money? <laughs> I can't do that and be faithful, right? But, but I, what I want you to see is that we, we enter this calling not because Jesus drives us into it. Jesus is out in front of us, right? Hebrews 12 says, fix your eyes on Jesus who's running in front of you, the author and perfect of your faith. Jesus says, you freely received, now freely give. Because all is gift, we can give. You see, only with a heavenly conviction where we don't worry about what we have to eat, but we set our hearts on the kingdom of God, can God really say to us, I'll give you everything else you need. And it is, and that produces, listen, that does not produce, see, many of you think deep down you're afraid that stewardship is going to create some kind of legalistic religious slavery, but it's not true. It's your worry that's enslaving you. It's your greed that's making you a slave. It's your fear that's crushing who you are meant to be. Jesus wants to make a free, fruitful, risking investor out of you, full of hope and heartbreak all the way along. Right? And he, he wants you to not worry about how much is in your barn and to know that we're to make barns for ourselves in heaven where there are no thieves and there is no rust and the stock market never goes down because we actually believe that's there. Because you, if you are in Christ, well, whether you're in Christ or not, this is true of you, but if you're in Christ, hopefully you know you are a steward. And the first and most fundamental thing to understand about being a steward is that the heart of stewardship is generosity toward God. And that cannot happen if we do not face greed and covetousness by watching for it and making war against it every single day. Let's pray. Lord, we— we recognize that um, talking about stewardship talks about everything. And it's, it's, that's so much more overloading to the heart than just little religious snippets. Like, I have sin, I need forgiveness, I accept Jesus. And we can think of that in this like little lane. And it just, it doesn't work out. And it's easier to think about. And to think about something like stewardship that's about everything. And that that's our identity in you. And it's what you've made us to be, and you've called us as your sons and daughters, and made us your friends in that sense, so that we could freely choose to invest and to live as though all is gift generously towards all who is around us. That feels overwhelming. Father, I pray that by your Spirit you would put on us the realization that it is freeing. There is nothing more freeing than receiving from you what we have, what you created us to be what we were meant to be, what we are in Christ. And we pray, Holy Spirit, you would empower us to shake off the shackles of greed and worry that go with them and to fix our eyes on you and to live as people who freely have received and freely give. Make us people who are vigilant against greed and who are full of generosity and who know in the marrow of our bones our life does not consist in the abundance of of our possessions, and that our hearts are set on seeking your kingdom. 
In Jesus' name.